0: Welcome to Advent. Welcome to an 11 o'clock service on Advent. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. That was positive energy. I love that. Um, We really do appreciate your support and your um, willingness to work with us and to be flexible in this uh, season here at Sanctuary where we have amazing uh, things happening among us. And over the next few weeks and months, God's going to continue to do great things. Amen? Amen. Try that again on the first Sunday of Advent. God's going to do great things. Amen? Amen. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) The gospel reading this morning, Mark chapter 13. Wow. It's an apocalyptic text to say the least. Jesus ends with these two very powerful words. Stay awake. Every preacher's prayer when he gets up to take the pulpit. (laughs) Stay awake. As you probably know, Advent is a season that celebrates the three comings of Jesus. His incarnation, some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. His parousia, his second coming at the culmination of human history, which may be any day, and it may be 100,000 years from now. And then, of course, the coming that's in between That we experience today in this room, in the sacraments, and in our life together. These three comings are celebrated in Advent. But for each one of these, it's important for us to realize that thematically, symbolically, Advent begins in the dark. That atmosphere and environment which is so conducive for sleep, the dark, it's the reason Jesus says, stay awake. And sleep is a very interesting thing because in the positive sense, it's very restful. But in a negative sense, we know that it's analogous to death. We often refer to those who are deceased as resting or sleeping. And with that in mind, I want to suggest that Advent is supremely counterintuitive. It's it's, it's an unusual way to begin what we call the most wonderful time of the year in the dark thinking about death, welcome to Advent. You see, because the Holy Spirit is not only the spirit of life, he is the spirit of death. Because the Holy Spirit is the one, the Lord, who brings us from death through to resurrection. And this is something that doesn't preach well. It's something that makes the first Sunday of Advent very difficult to dive in. Let's open uh, to Isaiah 64 and look at our Old Testament text this morning. The prophet crying out at the very first verse of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. So that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. So that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect. Has God ever done that for somebody here in the house? Just did something amazing you were not expecting God to do? You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard. No ear has perceived. No eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But, everybody say but. But. You were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would be released among us to give us courage, to give us hope, to give us honest spirits this morning. Pull us deeper into this longing for your son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. It seems like our advertisers and our stores have been working hard now since, I don't know, Labor Day to try to get us ready for Christmas? Does that seem about right now? It used to be Black Friday, which is appropriately black. Friday, it's an it's, it's, it's a, a embarrassing time for us as a nation, with people trampling one another and, and harming one another to get goods and products off of shelves. And that wasn't enough, so they backed it up to Halloween. And now, Lord only knows, 4th of July, will have Christmas trees out, I guess. And it's, it's our culture trying to manufacture something, trying to apprehend something that you can't do anything but wait for. You cannot make Christmas come any sooner by... Decorating, by partying, by shopping. The Christian year begins today, and it begins in darkness. And there's something about that that is incredibly off-putting to a lot of people. Especially um, those of us who have been taught and trained that to be a Christian is always to be happy. To be a Christian is to always be blessed, and blessing looks like life going really well, very smoothly for you, without hiccups, problems, challenges, and so on and so forth. And so then somebody gets up and says, oh, welcome to Advent. It's really dark, so let's light one candle. And it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. There's a movement, not just in our culture, but in the church to get away from the themes of death, from the themes of suffering. So our graveyards are now called cemeteries. Oh, they slipped that one past you and you didn't notice. It's not a graveyard anymore. It's a cemetery. And and some churches have actually changed their liturgy. When somebody dies, it used to be called a burial for the dead. And now it's called a celebration of life. What is this? This is a contemporary phenomenon in which we are obsessed with skirting and avoiding our own mortality and our own limitations and our own brokenness at any cost. The problem is Christians, above all people on the planet, should be able to reconcile death, should be able to face suffering with a smile on our face, not because we're faking it, but because we believe in resurrection. The reason the incarnation matters is because there's a resurrection coming in our future. This incarnated baby will be the savior of the world. He'll be the first one to get up out of the grave and put death in its proper place. And this is why we should have a spirit of honesty about us. We should be willing to understand you can't have resurrection if you don't have death. So when we say that we're resurrection people, we're saying that we're okay with death by implication. Not death in and of itself. I'm not talking silly talk here. I'm saying death in its proper context. Where is your sting, death? See, Christians among all people, we should be free to look our own sin in the face, to look our own failure in the face, to look our own darkness, to look our own brokenness in the face because of this resurrection. We don't need to repress our fears. We don't need to hide our personal brokenness. There's a liberation in the room this morning. It's counterintuitive, and it's odd. When everybody's trying to put, you know, like... uh, Clark Griswold lights on their house to dispel as much darkness as possible. You come into church and the preacher's talking about your darkness. Why? Because the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, can bear up under our darkness. Now, let me just say this in bold print with capital letters. This is not to say we pursue darkness. This is not to say we revel in Darkness. This is not to say that we are a brooding, dark people. No. We are a people who need to be marked out by holy joy. This morning, it's simply permission to be honest and to look at all of our lives. Pull up the carpets, open the closet doors, and admit life isn't perfect. Let's make it more personal. I'm not perfect. Let's make it more personal. I'm a sinful, self-willed, difficult person. There are times, you notice I'm just moving. I'm keeping moving this morning. Sister, pastor on the front row, amen and in all the wrong spots. See, I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself this morning, but I can honestly tell you this morning that I relate to Isaiah's cry because, you know, you might be Jesus' second cousin. I don't know, but for me, there are times when the Bible just doesn't jump out and tackle me when I try to read it. There are times when I'm praying and it doesn't sound like George Beverly Shay's deep baritone voice. There are times where I'm just a mess and my Bible gets stuck together and it doesn't crack open like it should There are times when those prayers get a little bit stale, a little bit cold, and you start to wonder, am I faking it? I'm just, I'm going to keep being honest until somebody says, yeah, you know what, that's kind of me too. You know, there are times where I'm very thankful that I have to wear a collar because it does keep me on my best behavior and the days I don't have it on. Anyway, moving along, I, I don't know. I got out there, and I'm like, let's bring that right back, because just there's a point where it's just TMI, too much information. The fa- all I'm trying to get at is, I feel like I have solidarity. I, I can identify with Isaiah saying, "Oh, that you would tear open the heavens." I mean, do you hear the 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 the, the visceral, raw expression of the prophet? That you would tear open the heavens and come down. See the thing about this it is assuming that the heavens are brass. It's assuming that God is hidden. It's assuming that we're living our lives at the mercy of our own sin. Has anybody ever prayed this prayer? Don't wave your hand, don't acknowledge just in your heart, God, it's me, I did it again. Right? Has anybody felt like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, make it gender uh, appropriate? Oh, wretched man that I am. Has anybody ever felt that? The things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things that I want to do, I can't seem to do those things. Has anybody ever felt that? That's the prayer of, would you tear the heavens and come down? 2017 might have been that sort of year for you. Oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am. In the dark, rip heaven open and show up, God. What I love about the God that Isaiah is crying out to here is he's crying out to a God who acts in ways that we don't expect. I think this is incredibly powerful, and it gives us a lot of hope this morning. Because we understand God best in what he has done, not in what we presume he should do. Please read the text carefully. His hope, the focal cry of his prayer, the focal point of his prayer is this God who acts in unexpected ways. This God who shows up and makes mountains tremble. Who makes adversaries and enemies quake at the mention of his name. That's the God that he's calling to. But he's calling to him on the basis of what he's done. Not on the basis of what he thinks he should do. The beauty of scripture is that it gives us an image of God. That presents clearly his workings among men. And it rescues us by the power of the Spirit from our own vain imaginations of what God should be. It shows us what he has done. God would answer Isaiah's prayer. He would answer the prayer of an open heaven in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. It's in that moment when Jesus emerges from the waters of his own baptism. And Matthew says, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. There Jesus stands in the Jordan River, the one true and faithful Israelite. The one Israelite, the only one who ever lived who was completely faithful to the covenant of God. And there he stands representing and seeing an open heaven. But the issue here is no one expected this to happen. You remember John? When Jesus comes to get baptized, he says, whoa, this can't happen. This shouldn't be going down this way. People watching Jesus, not being able to perceive who he was, not being able to imagine that this is God enfleshed, this Jesus is the answer no one expected. No one anticipated. This man who is also God. And think about how long it took the church to wrestle through this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man. In the moment, how hard is this to deal with? This is John's cousin. And the heavens open up and the Father speaks and the Spirit descends like a dove. No, I... No ear could have imagined it. That's why Paul improvises Isaiah's text, doesn't he? Maybe as we were reading it this morning, you're like, I've heard that before. Yes, you've heard it before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the ninth verse, what does he say? He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart or imagination of men what God has prepared for those who love him. Ambrosiaster, one of the fathers of the church, says Paul uses this phrase from Isaiah to refer to the incarnation of Christ, which not only goes against human perception. This is amazing. It goes against human perception, but it is beyond the understanding of heavenly powers as well. When we come into Advent, we come into a season where we're recalibrating our thinking to say that the coming of God in the man of Jesus is not only beyond anything we could have dreamed. The angels, the heavenly powers, nobody could have dreamed this up. God answers the prayer of Isaiah in unexpected ways. How many people in the room this morning could say, I'm going to lift up my hand and say, I'm praying for God to do something great in my life. Would you do that this morning? I need God to do something. Okay. Can I say this to you? Be wide open because he may answer that in the most unexpected way you could ever imagine. As a matter of fact, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, if I was a betting man, I'd say he's going to answer it in a way you don't expect. I can't imagine. I love this fact that we cry out to a God who, it says in the fourth verse, he works for those who wait for him. Anybody here like waiting Okay, good. I just want to make sure if there was somebody you I'm stepping down and you're coming up and take the next 3 weeks and show us how. Advent is an opportunity for us to grow in our capacity to wait well. You know, you can wait and then you can wait well. When you're waiting for somebody to change? Anybody here married? So let's go back again. When you're waiting for somebody to change, you can wait or you can wait well. Anybody work for a grumpy boss? Paul better not raise his hand. Okay. Anybody work for a grumpy boss? You can wait or you can wait well. What is the difference? Our attitude, our disposition, our language. Advent is a season. When the hard work of waiting in difficult circumstances is fleshed out in us. It's so hard to wait when circumstances are good. Imagine when they're bad. Some of you are like, I can. I can imagine that. And the last thing you want to hear in a bad circumstance is wait a little bit more. There's this great verse in Galatians where Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time. Man, that's an awful thing to hear. God's not in a rush. He's going to wait until time is filled up. Augustine says this, with the fullness of time, he appeared. The one who wanted to set us free from time. For set free from time, we would be able to reach that eternity which is beyond time. Friends, can I suggest this morning that if God is making us wait, it's because he's getting us to the place where he can liberate us from time altogether. So let's wait well. As a friend of mine would say, you can either go through it or you can grow through it. Just figure out which one it's going to be. Chances are when we don't grow through it, we're going to go back and go through it again. So let's wait well. In whatever season of waiting you find yourself, understand this. God works for those who wait for him. All of this positive talk is a setup. Prophet's going to pull the rug out from under us right now. You ready? Put a seatbelt on all this great big talk about God who causes, you know, the the fire to start burning and all this. Isaiah is really saying this. God, you're awesome. And you do good to your people. But I'm afraid we may have disqualified ourselves. God, we're in a bad spot. Man, I really wish you'd show up and fix it. But I'm afraid we don't really qualify for that help. See, this is the prophetic honesty that I think is healing to our souls. There's too much, if you could just give me a moment of indulgence here, there's too much nonsense, I think, coming across pulpits and airwaves today telling us to tell God what he should do for us. And what I really think we need to do is we need to wise up to the sort of honest brokenness and humility that says... I'm in a mess. It's probably my own doing. And I certainly don't qualify for help. That might be a better place to start. I'm thinking of the parable where Jesus says it's better for you to sit in the back of the room than to go to the head of the table and have to be told to go to the back of the room. I'd much rather come to the Lord saying, I'm an unclean man. I'm unworthy and I'm broken. I don't deserve your help. I actually don't know if you're going to help me and have God surprise me and say, what do you want me to do for you? See, that's the posture of the blind man who comes and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'd rather start there and, and hear God say, come on up higher. I'd rather hear God say, let me show my strength. I'd much rather do that than come in like a petulant child pointing my finger in the face of Almighty God saying, you better do this because you cannot lie. Back to the notes. I'm sorry about that. But look how he says he's disqual- we've disqualified ourselves. Look at this, verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean. And it gets worse. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. Pardon me, but in accuracy we have to say the obvious. The filthy rag is a menstrual rag. All our righteous deeds don't result in fruit. There's no pregnancy there. All of our efforts, we have nothing to show for them. What do we do? He goes on. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Iniquity is this term in Hebrew that really gets at this idea of guilt. We shouldn't think of iniquity as the same thing as a sin or as a transgression. Iniquity is sort of the surrounding black cloud of guilt that, that encompasses us when we step out on our own and we defy God and the Holy Spirit. There's this sense of, 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 of iniquity. And he's saying we all fade like a leaf. And look at this, and the wind, our iniquity, comes and just blows us around. We get to the point, when a leaf fades, it's because there's less light and there's less warmth. And it stops receiving the energy it needs to be what it's been. Can I say that again? A leaf changes and fades because of darkness and cold. The lack of light and the lack of warmth results in a lack of the energy that is needed to be what you've been. The New Living Translation is very helpful here. And it's where we got this very odd, series title for Advent. Listen to this. Verse 5. You welcome, this is speaking all the good stuff about God. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. But you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And look at this, like autumn leaves... We wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. So it would seem that the pathos of our text this morning asks the question, can this great God come and rescue a people like us? And if that question offends our sensibilities, I think we should be concerned. If we insist that we don't need saving, we should be concerned. If we presume that God has to save us, we should be concerned. As I said, this is not a call for us to brood over our failures. This is not a call for us to brood over our sin. But it is a call for us to step into the freedom from sin that allows us to be honest about sin. And our hope this morning, our hope in this season of Advent, as I look around, and I'm guessing there's a few autumn leaves in the room, our hope is that just like in his first coming, we can have a coming today. That just as he was willing to enter the human experience of Israel As it was, he can enter the human experience of sanctuary as it is. Whatever darkness is around, he's not concerned. Whatever death is around, he's the Lord of death. Whatever sin is around, he's conquered sin. Jesus entered the human experience as it was. Not as it should have been, but as it was. It was dark and it was under the reign of death. He entered human vulnerability in the most vulnerable form, an infant. This matters to us. His first coming was a tearing open of the sky, his first coming was an arrival to autumn leaves. His first coming was an arrival to people whose sin had left them powerless and broken and in darkness. Every person who's dealing with frustration this morning. Every person who's got stuff that you don't want to talk about in your life this morning. Advent is for you this morning. Advent brings hope to you this morning. Because Advent says those are the sorts of situations Jesus shows up in. Everything that we've been taught by our culture, by our families, and by our churches to hide, to avoid, to put it away in the closet, Jesus says, no, 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 I'll come right into the closet. You don't even have to bring it out. Keep the skeletons. I'll go play with the skeletons in the closet. That's where Jesus goes. As a matter of fact, Jesus comes in the same sort of vulnerability that you and I have this morning. See, autumn leaves when it comes to people Our sin has detached us from the tree of life. And we fall down to the ground, to our fleshiness, to our carnality. And Jesus comes there and meets us in that place. There's a sort of connection between the way we are and the way that Jesus comes. Because on some level, we're all autumn leaves. And on another level, Jesus comes as an autumn leaf. as I was preparing this message in particular, but as we were getting ready for Advent, I was reminded of a poem from Archbishop Dr. Rowan Williams. And uh, he's the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wrote a poem called Advent Calendar. And this morning, I want us to do something a little bit different, and I wonder if we could all close our eyes And listen to the words of the poem this morning as a sort of closing prayer. He will come like last leaf's fall. One night when the November wind has flayed the trees to the bone. And earth wakes choking on the mold. The soft shrouds folding. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien, sword-set beauty. He will come like dark. One evening when the bursting red of December sun draws up the sheet and penny masks as I to yield the star-snowed fields of sky. He will come. Will come. He will come like crying in the night, like blood, like breaking as the earth writhes to toss him free he will come like child